Whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. That's verse 1 of the Athanasian Creed. It's on page 319 of your hymnal. We're going to spend some time with it this morning. To be Catholic is a problematic word. I'm on record as having said, and so I have no real problem saying to you, my parish, by whom I get the majority of my livelihood, that I think the most unifying thing a person can say today in Christianity, the most unifying thing we can say after he is risen, right, after what the creeds say that we should all agree on without argument, the most unifying thing we can say is that the Pope is the Antichrist, that is, as an office, he has hijacked the actual church of Jesus Christ and uses it for evil. It doesn't mean all Catholics worship the devil. It means that their church has been stolen. We're Catholics who say it out loud. There's Catholics there right now who are struggling. I just heard a story this morning about a pro-life priest being removed from his parish and sent to Rome. He'll end up in exile somewhere almost nice, maybe a monastery or something. That's evil. That's evil. The Catholic faith is not that. The Catholic faith is the faith inherited from the early church. It's what they fought to preserve against the winds and tides of their history, which was not quite like ours. And these three ecumenical creeds, as we call them in the West, the Apostles and the Nicene, and the Athanasian stand as benchmarks, benchmarks of unity from over 1,500 years ago. In this, then, as divided and broken as Christianity does appear today, these creeds remain a way to unify us beyond imagination. We all, Baptists, Calvinists, Wesleyans, Roman Catholics, and even Eastern Orthodox, believe what these creeds teach. And since there are so many people who hate what these creeds teach now, we might stop hating each other, even though we have some significant disagreements and there's some blood guilt, frankly, on the Pope's hands. It is what it is. What I want is to have us not be afraid of the term Catholic, nor of things that are Catholic. What I want us to do is realize that most of the so-called Catholics in our area are very disappointed with their churches and would just love to hear some encouragement about what we believe. I've run into two Catholics right now who I think won't visit our church because they don't think they'd be welcome. I'm still trying to figure that out. They're not going to their church, though. Their church doesn't have time or space for them with all the shutdown and everything else. They're not sure they like where things are going anyway. But they, they're afraid to come here. Why? Well, we're afraid of Catholics, <laughs> to be honest. We're afraid of the word, even though it's right here, right in the first part of this creed, that we say together, if we are Catholic churches, every year, one time, Trinity Sunday. It happens every year if you want to be part of that great liturgical tradition, which is the history of how Christians have worshipped before you grew up and found the electric guitar. That great liturgical tradition is valuable because it brings a unity that's bigger than me or you or us. And again, then, to join the church calendar, to be in the year where you find Trinity Sunday and the confession of the Athanasian Creed is to be a Catholic. 
unashamedly and gladly so, even though you think the Pope's sitting in the office of the Antichrist, or calling it, if you will. All right, so that's my advocacy for just that word Catholic here. Now, what I want to do next, though, is try to show you how much in this creed you are unfamiliar with, even though we've said it every year. And that's because it's very long, tedious even, certainly to our ears, and most people's memories of it are something along the lines of, I hated this Sunday as a kid, right? I mean, you laugh because it's true. What we've tried to do liturgically to make it work is go back and forth where I read a verse and you read a verse, and it, it makes it go smoother than trying to say it all together all the way through. It really, that's a, it is tough. Um, but I don't think that makes it easier for you to see what it says. Because you got the sentences broken up, and you got, again, these large terms that we're talking about in the collect, these large terms just kind of come and go. So this year, I am going to confess the Athanasian Creed to you while you have it in front of you to hear it confessed publicly as what we as a church believe. If all of you want to rebel and make me let you all together confess it after I do this, after the sermon's over, I'll lose. I promise we can, but it'll add another you know, 10 minutes to the service. What I want more than a show is for these words that we say you must believe to be saved, and the Roman Catholics agree with us about this. I want you to be confident about these things. Yeah? So, first, I'm just going to read it to you. And I'm going to read it as my confession. I don't have it memorized. I have managed to get the Nicene committed to memory. I once had the apostles committed to memory, but now that I've got the Nicene committed, I trip on the apostles sometimes. So there's always that. I haven't yet put my hand to memorizing this one. Um, but, you know, it's the kind of thing that, it wouldn't it be good if we all just did? Yeah, easier said than done. Let's settle today again with becoming familiar with it. Becoming familiar with it. I'm going to take a sip of water before I begin. Again, on page 319 in your hymnal. Verse 1, it says, Whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. Whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled will without doubt perish eternally. And the Catholic faith is this, that we... Worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. Neither confusing the persons, nor dividing the substance. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is another. But the Godhead of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is one. The glory equal the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated, the Father infinite, the Son infinite, the Holy Spirit infinite. The Father, eternal. The Son, eternal. The Holy Spirit, 
eternal. And yet, there are not three eternals, but one eternal. Just as there are not three uncreated or three infinites, or, uh, but one uncreated and one infinite. In the same way, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. And yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. So the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. And yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Just as we are compelled by the Christian truth to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so also we are prohibited by the Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or three lords. The Father is not made, nor created, nor begotten by anyone. The Son is neither made nor created, but begotten of the Father alone. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. Thus, there is one Father, not three, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal with each other and co-equal. So that in all things, as has been stated above, the Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity is to be worshipped. Therefore, whoever desires to be saved must think thus about the Trinity. But it is also necessary for everlasting salvation that one faithfully believe the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is the right faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the same time both God and man. He is God, begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages. And he is man, born from the substance of his mother, in this age, perfect God and perfect man, composed of a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father with respect to his divinity, less than the Father with respect to his humanity. Although he is God and man, he is not two, but one Christ. One, however, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of the humanity into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the rational soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. 
At his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. And those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil into eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. Amen. There is a lot there. And as I was reading it, the very thought of attempting to teach on it publicly terrified me. Because it is such a valuable reality, and it's so easily misunderstood. And especially then, as one is teaching it, it's quite easy for one to slip up and say something that a moment later you realize, nope, that was wrong. Because when we're trying to understand the Trinity, we're doing it wrong, period. The revelation of God's hidden mystery is not given to us so that we can figure it out. He reveals the hidden mystery as something we will never understand, but now we know. I was really blessed by Pastor Cypress last night. He comes to the 4 p.m. service now with Bonnie, and they're both doing well, if you were wondering. Um, after the service, he, he wanted to share with me that he had been in a, a, a it's called an interview. When you, you go through the SNP route to become a pastor, you're going to sit down and have a conversation about a couple of theological points with the seminary. And he was in his interview, and, and he said it was getting a little heated about the Trinity. And the prof who was, who was talking to him was just kind of pushing a little harder than, than Pastor Cypress was really feeling like he, he wanted to deal with. And so he said, you know, I think my answer is Deuteronomy 29, 29. And he's telling me this last night. I'm like, oh, I don't know that one off the top of my head. Well, I looked it up, though. Uh, it, it says this. Think about it, the Trinity. He's being interviewed about the Trinity and someone's saying, I think you said it wrong. And he says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But to those which are revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, to parse that and summarize it, what he was saying in his interview is, God revealed Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I'm trying to say it, and you're trying to trap me. So I'm going to say what he said, and then let the rest of it be up to him. And I was told by him that the other professor said, I think that's a good answer. I think we can move on at that point. So it, was, it is a good answer to recognize that there are secret things that belong to God and there are revealed things that belong to us as his church. And when they are revealed, we are to have them, even though it still remains a secret thing, the Trinity. So before I say anything else about this, you know, let he who is perfect cast the first stone on telling us how it goes. I do know this. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you're not a Catholic and therefore you're not a Christian. That applies across the board. If you do not believe that the Father is God, that the Son is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, you're not a Christian. It just doesn't work that way. Where do I say this in the text here? That whole first page can be summarized just in verses 16 and 17. Well, 15, 16, and 17. That the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods but one God. So the Father is Lord. It goes on to talk about the Lord. It's just the God part summarizes it perfectly. The whole point is there is one God. When you run into this God, 
Sometimes he's Jesus. Oh, see, even that gets dangerous the way I said it. You run into Jesus and he's God. You run into the Spirit and he's God. You run into the Father and he's God. But they're all God and not three gods. That is impossible. That cannot be believed. And yet, you do believe it because he is risen. Alleluia. And he sent his apostles into the world to gather his church by baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so you have to believe that the Father of Jesus, who he speaks of as God, is God. And you have to believe that the Spirit of Jesus, who prophesies from the Old Testament of Jesus as God, both of them, is God. You have to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, made manifest. And you have to believe there's only one God. No matter how we want to say it, no matter how you spin around it, if you say otherwise, you've rejected the true Jesus. And I would surmise you'll eventually reject the Lord's Supper as the presence of Jesus. And those who do reject that carry one of these errors scuttled underneath their Christology. doesn't make them not Christians because they're not up front like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons saying Jesus is just a God. See, they're wrong. And that's why they're not Christians. You should pray for your Mormon friends and neighbors especially. Because they do not know the true God. And Judgment Day will be harsh for those who don't. That's what this means. Whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold to the Catholic faith. The rest of the language on that first page is making that point about there being one God and each of the three persons is God over and over again from different directions. So I don't want to belabor that now. But I want to point out how it summarizes it in talking about the word God, as opposed to almighties or infinites. God is the summary word. And then there's another summary word, the Lord. Why two? To show how these identities from the Old Testament are the same. Huh? How the Son of Man, the Christ, the King, the Shepherd, David, his Son on his throne, the Lord, the King who would come, would be God, and vice versa, how God would be that Lord. This is why, at a certain point, you have Christianity adopting the Jewish custom of translating God's Old Testament name, Yahweh, as the Lord, is they begin to realize that the king who is going to come is God. And now here again, Christians from the 300s and 400s and 500s were willing to die to pass this forward to you and to me. That I could believe and confess it too. Now again, we could spend more time on all of those narrow things. What's the difference between infinite and eternal? Talk about one to have a lawsuit over, let me tell you. Uh, the next page though, verses 20 to 22, gives what I think is the best explanation you're going to get of the differences between these three eternals. These, excuse me, this one eternal that is each of them. See how easy it is to say it wrong. Now, that's why it's not given for us to argue about it. It's given for us to believe. But again, verse 20, the Father is not made nor created nor begotten by anyone. The Father just is, right? He just is. And he's God. We've established he's God. Now the Son, who's also God, he is neither made nor created. That means there was never a time when he was not there. He's always been there. But he is begotten of the Father. 
Now, what does that mean? It means that he's always coming from the Father. He is always a, a, a begetting of the Father as his source, as the hymn says. Um, and then the Spirit is different yet again. So while the Son is begotten and the Father is neither made nor created, the Holy Spirit is proceeding from them both. And of course, our Eastern Orthodox friends online go, no, he's wrong. We'll leave that for another time. It's a split that shouldn't be a split. It's really about the Pope in 1000 when they did it too. So it's always the office of the Antichrist dividing us by calling attention to himself instead of the Christ. Let's leave that. Proceeding, everyone in the West agrees with, and we're in the West. We are of the West, and it's right. The Bible says it. What does it say? It says that, whereas Jesus comes from the Father in the begetting, the Father's his source, Together then, Father and Son, they send the Holy Spirit who proceeds from them both. Huh? So that if we want to talk about source again, and you can get that wrong, so don't go to the bank with the word source, but it is okay language in some, some edges of it, that the Father begets the Son, the Son comes as source, and then from Father and Son together, the Spirit. Eternally. This isn't in time. This is just how they always are. <laughs> again, it doesn't really make sense, but you can see how they have a relationship. And then you can see something quite miraculous that does make sense. That in the relationship of a father to a son in our world, you have the begetting that echoes, resembles, looks just like who God actually is. Two persons of one substance who will often have the same spirit proceed from their mouth. because That's how God made it. So the relationship between father, son, and family becomes a reflection of the relationship between father, son, and Holy Spirit. We are built in his image, shattered and broken as we are. So there's some very obvious and real beauty in this theology. It just isn't math. And Plato has taught us to think that math's the only way to talk. And Plato's got his uses, and math's got great uses, but it's not the only way to talk. The Trinity is not math. It's relationship and the eternal revelation of the hidden God as a grace for human lips to say as a sign to angels and demons alike. I mean, rejoice, rejoice in that. Okay, so for the sake of time this morning, um, I, I, I don't want to get bogged down. There's so much here that we could talk about that is, is pertinent today. Uh, the other churches that are out there, whether they say the name or not of what they really teach on the inside, uh, there are places where edges of this are questioned. And Christians who are unaware of what they say and pastors who are unaware of what they say um, so there's a lot here that's worth getting into, especially the incarnation of Jesus, what it means that he took on flesh, what it means that God took man into the Godhead, as opposed to that point about, you know, God turning himself into man. Um, that's a really amazing idea that would take an hour to get to and talk about. And at the end of it, you'd be like, you're right. That's so right. We got to always say that. Right. Each of these points can go in that direction. I, I, I don't have the capacity to do that for you this morning, but. I, I want to highlight again. Let me skim for for a second, if you'll give me a moment. <laughs> I think I've got what I've got out from there, with the exception of the part that always causes Lutherans trouble, and that's at the end. Verse 38 says... At his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. Verse 39, and those who have done good will enter into eternal life. 
and those who have done evil into eternal fire. And if you've ever been in a debate about are we saved by grace or are we saved by works, some part of you goes, oh my goodness, it looks like it says we're saved by works. How do we as Lutherans explain it so it doesn't say that? And then, of course, if you get in an argument with a Catholic who knows their stuff, they'll say, look, it says you're saved by works. You have to be saved this way. And you're going to be like, oh, my goodness, it says that. And we can't really confess this anymore. I want to say to you on that point that that is to invade an ancient idea with an argument that they were never worried about, not the way that we are. When they talk about here, those who doing good enter in, into eternal life, they are by no means suggesting that by pilgrimages and fasting and prayer to the saints and worshiping all the things the Pope tells you to do, that therefore you're going to be able to earn your way out of purgatory by paying for it with money at the end of the day. There's no way that that's what this means. What it means is that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. So you better know what a good person is. And it just told you. It's someone who believes in the Trinity that's a unity that sent Jesus to die and rise and be your king. Hmm? To believe that he is risen, alleluia, is to do good for the first time in your life. And all other good that comes out to your neighbor in the world around you that may come from that, it is a blessing of the Spirit to your life, having prepared those good works for you to walk in them. But by no means does it mean you're saved because you do that stuff. It's an important argument. It's one Rome was willing to shed blood over. But I don't think we need to worry about it when we confess the creed. I think we can just be glad to know we're those doing good as we confess the creed. We're those doing good as we beg our Lord to cover us again this week in these dark and wicked times when we're confused and don't know what next to do and want to take a good step for everyone around us but have so many misinformation stories hitting our way. We're just here to plead his mercy. That's to do good. And it doesn't mean you're justified because you did it. You're justified by him rising from the dead in your place and saying, I got you in your baptism. Get baptized. You are. Take my flesh and blood again. You are. Not to earn it, but because he gives it. And he gives it. And those who know and have tasted that the Lord is good, they know he just gives more grace. He just gives more grace. So don't come at me with the Athanasian Creed as if it's about justification by works. What nonsense. The Catholic faith is what it teaches us. And indeed, we must believe it. Now, for the sake of that, with our remaining time today, I want to get some actual text of the Bible. I love our confessions. I love the testimonies of men that are honest and orthodox and true. We should cling to them. That's why you should pick up your copy of the Augsburg Confession and of the small catechism on your way out. Did I do this announcement at this service or at the last service? Just at the last service. So coming up this next six months, we are again hoping to consider our Constitution. It's a little bit long. Uh, it's a little bit tedious, asks us to do way more than we can do as a group. One of the first things the Constitution says is whatever you do to run the church, you have to do it according to the small catechism and the Augsburg Confession. And it struck me as we were going through a, a conversation process about this that I've never been in a council meeting where we really consulted those things as the manual for how to run the church. So I thought, why don't we at least get to know them while we talk about how we're going to make our manual for how to run the church sometime this year. But that Augsburg Confession and that small catechism, those aren't just like our little church thing. And those aren't even just like a Lutheran Church, Missouri synod thing. That is like a, if you don't have these, you ain't a Lutheran thing. You really aren't. This is the definition of the term. 
Luther's small catechism and the confession given at the Diet of Augsburg in 1530. This is what it means. So pick your free copy up. I love them. I want to talk about them all day, unless it means I don't have time to talk about the word. And I do want to talk about the word today. I want to give you two pieces of these texts that we did here read, starting with the one from John. I want to highlight why this is here on Trinity Sunday. And it's it's just gloriously beautiful. It belongs in a comic book with fire behind Jesus' eyes. And I really mean it. There's a moment in this conversation where he just goes beast mode, God mode. He just turns it on. And he doesn't shine. He talks in the plural. It's really something, right? So Nicodemus has come to him by night. In the John story, this is contrasted the next day with the Samaritan woman at the well who'd had seven husbands and the current man she's living with is not her husband. She meets Jesus in the daytime and learns he is the son of God and tells everyone she knows that she knows he's the son of God. Nicodemus comes at night and he will leave confused in spite of John 3.16. Nicodemus comes at night. This man is a prince among his people. He's a Pharisee. That means he's of the party of the people that have come out of the Maccabean kingdoms. Uh, They rule like elders amongst the council more than anything official. I mean, they get together, say, at night for a trial or something sometimes, but not usually. By and large, these were the good people of the city. And Nicodemus, in John's gospel, is a sympathetic figure. There's every reason to believe he does come to be a believer later in his life. But he's not a figure of belief here. He's a figure of a wealthy man who's in charge of everything, he's become comfortable, and he's forgotten who his God is. And now he's coming to talk to what he thinks is a prophet. He's going to find out that this prophet is God, and again, he's not going to understand it, and Jesus is going to say, you don't understand. In that happening, we have this language about being born again, being born of water and the Spirit. And as Lutherans, we have always understood, I think, right there along with John 6, that these two passages are shadows of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So to be born of water and the Spirit, to become a believer in Jesus Christ, is to understand the meaning of your baptism, which is that he is risen. Hallelujah. That's what it means to be a born-again Christian at the start. Again, if you don't have that, you're not one. The Trinity comes right there with it. He's talking about being born again. We get the stuff about baptism. But Nicodemus doesn't understand any of this. Not just because it's not really about baptism in the narrow, but because he doesn't think Jesus is his teacher. He does not think Jesus is his rabbi. Otherwise, he would not ask, how can this be? He would say, please teach me more. But instead, he says, how can this be? And Jesus calls him out. So you think you're in charge. You think you're powerful. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? You could say that to our country today when you talk about the difference between an eight-year-old boy and girl. You know, you're the teachers and leaders of us and you don't understand this. Of course, we can't have conversations with our elites today. They're too far away. But it's the same problem. Detachment from reality. And for the Christian, that means detachment from who your God is. So he says to him at this moment, right, you're the teacher of Israel, God mode. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, that's singular, plural, we, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, 
I mean, that's either weird or you believe in the Trinity. There's really no other way to look at that. Yeah. Who is we? It's definitely him and the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit has been with him since his baptism, that they're operating together. Huh? And we know that they always are one with the Father. So when you see Jesus, you see the Father. That's what he says to Philip. Have I been with you so long? You do not know me. So how this mystery works inside Jesus? I, ah, Jesus is the Son. And yet he can turn on the we whenever he wants to. It's, it's a powerful moment. And that's why the text is here, really. All the baptism stuff is by, well, by procreation from the actual Trinity existing. Yeah? Finally, to send us on our way today, or really to bring us to this altar, Isaiah's vision. What a thing, eh? I don't know. Can you feel? I stamped my foot while I was reading. Try to make the lintels shake. You know, It's not going to shake the whole building, but there's these angels that Isaiah suddenly sees. And they're glorious and powerful and all-consuming. All uh, when they describe these angels in other places, they're built of fire. They have eyeballs all over their bodies. They're just, they're just gnarly as anything can be. And our, our imagery here is it's very tame. I like it. It's, it's kind of like a window, so I'm not against it. I bought it, in fact. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it, it doesn't capture everything the Bible says. It captures a couple things uh, very well. It captures the six wings that the seraphim or cherubim, I think they're the same, the six wings uh, that they have are on the body of the angel. And then the angel is standing on a wheel. And the wheel has two other wings. And that's because in Ezekiel, in a different place, angels likened to the cherubim or seraphim or however you work out the distinction between the two are seen on a throne on four wheels that are wheels within, within wheels and they're spinning every direction. It's like super crazy dr strange kind of thing and and then they got wings on the wheels that's the main thing so there are six wings on the seraphim cherubim there are two wings on the wheels isaiah sees all this kind of in his own real way and he's as soon as he's there they're shouting to each other holy 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 is yahweh the lord god of hosts that's jesus christ too by the way and then it all is like filled with smoke and they're shaking and thunder and craziness and Isaiah is a believer already. He knows precisely what's going on. And he, he thinks it's judgment day. It's judgment day. I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell right now. It's my turn. That's what he does. I'm going to hell. All the people that live with, we're going to hell too. And then this burning angel, this beast of unseen reality, goes over to the altar and grabs a burning coal from the altar that has to use tongs to get off the altar because the altar is too holy for the angel to touch, but he can handle the coal. And he takes the coal, and Isaiah's got his face on. Can you imagine? You, you lift up, and there's a burning angel beast with a fiery coal, and he shoves it on your lips. You know, ah! Well, at least, right? I'd cry, baby. I should. It hurts. Just thinking about it, it hurts. But what's said? Behold... This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I'm going to cut to the chase. That coal is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, all the work that he has done, his ascension to the Godhead, breaking forth into creation as something that is strange and bizarre in order to sanctify, justify, redeem, and enliven Isaiah. As a foreshadow 
of the fact that he will do that to all of his prophets, priests, and kings, all of his Christians, when he sends by means of bread and wine a miraculous and unbelievable gift to touch your lips and declare to you the very same promise, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. I'm very thankful that we get the bread and wine and not the fiery angel beast and burning coal experience myself. I prefer the fulfillment of the New Testament as a person who has to live in it. But I love and I respect the people of the Old Testament who lived it for real and saw God before the redemption had taken place. For us now, don't have survivor guilt about it or nothing. For such a time as this, you were put here to believe this, to be one with other Christians who will stand for the Trinity in unity as something that's bigger than being a Lutheran or a Calvinist or even a Roman Catholic. It's about being a Catholic Christian. And that we're here today, St. Paul, to be that church in this place if nobody else will be. And we'll stand and shout it proudly that we inherit from of old of the fathers the testimonies which are true. And point us back to the scriptures that convict us that the Holy Spirit was at work in Jesus and his apostles. And he's also at work in us. He's in us. So that we can speak in the plural of being the body of Christ because the body of Christ has touched our lips. Taken our sin away, atoned. How good it is. How good it is to be a Romans 8 Catholic Christian in the name of Jesus. Amen.